The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is proudly brought to you by Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. You'd think dairy farming would be an area ripe for innovation. With some big questions about the sustainability of the industry around pollution, effluent, nitrates, greenhouse gases, animal welfare, and growing past a strict put-more-cows-on-land model, there's a lot to work on. And with billions at stake, they are questions that are important for the whole country. So you'd think the industry would take an innovator and support them. Well... That wasn't exactly the case for Glenn Herod of Happy Cow Milk. He set out to make two major changes in dairy practice. A sustainability change around packaging practice with reusable glass bottles and an ethical change to try to address the practice of removing calves from cows at birth and sending them to the slaughterhouse at just a few days old. A practice that can be distressing for the calf, cow and the farmer. Along the way, Glenn had to build out every change as the existing structures in our huge industry couldn't fit the model. He built a mobile milking shed, a bottling plant, his own distribution, but it wasn't enough. Labelled niche and made expensive, the volume didn't come, and he made the hard call to call time on the project that had taken his savings, years of his life, and had him away from family. Then an amazing thing happened. His Facebook post calling time went bananas. The story about it on the spin-off travelled far and wide and thousands of people signed up to hear more, liked and shared the posts, told their friends, offers to invest came in. With dairy so important and the practices so ripe for scrutiny, it's important work and I'm very excited to have Glenn in today to talk the entrepreneur's journey, the industry and what's next for Happy Cow Milk. Thank you for joining us today, Glenn Herod. Hey, so tell me, um, what led you to be interested in setting up an alternative way to dairy? Uh, what's your family background and your farming background? Well, my grandparents were dairy farming in Zimbabwe. My parents were dairy farming in Zimbabwe and they immigrated to New Zealand after Robert Mugabe tried to lock my dad up. Um, we came out in the in the 80s and dad, we re- really worked their way up through the dairy farming system. So I grew up dairy farming and... Went to Lincoln University and studied dairy farming, went dairy farming and then decided I actually didn't really like dairy farming and um, started an appliance rental business in Invercargill and (laughs) sort of did something completely different. And that's where I learned a lot about marketing and sales. And I could just see that that was an area that's really lacking in New Zealand agriculture is that ability to market and sell their product. What was it about dairying that you didn't like after having grown up in it and studied it? Well, it's seven days a week. It's, you know, early starts, late finishes. 
it's relentless and it's just the the hours are, are so long and I just found I had no life I couldn't really do my Saturday sport um, and yeah I just I thought there must be something better than this age you know 24 or something I thought let's try something different but, Ske- mm. sketch the life of a, of a dairy farmer you know like um what, what 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 time do you start and you know what time yeah. do you finish and what, God, the, it always strikes me about the the things that are totally out of your control like the milk price and no matter how hard you work it can all be worth it or not worth it yeah that's right well um the, the whole thing is that you're trying to between morning milking you're trying to give the cows as much break a gap as possible between the afternoon milking so you can get more milk so you start early in the morning and you know, I remember my first dairy job um, we would start at four in the morning, um, milk, have an hour for breakfast, have an hour for lunch and be finished at about five thirty, six o'clock. And we did that. You basically do that seven days a week and I would, I'd do 11 days on and then get two days off. And, um, yeah, so you really every second weekend off and it just, um, well, it just wears you down. <laughs> and, and if you don't have a family living on the farm with you how do you how do you have a family life or how do you well, how do you live yeah and that's why on dairy farms you generally have a house that comes with the farm so it's quite unique the dairy farming job it's you, you apply for a job and it comes with a house and there's a lot of perks with that and um yeah it's uh it's it's funny watching the industry progress over the years you know i'd say farmers are probably the hardest working people in new zealand uh they work really really hard so um yeah, but uh, it's a it's a funny old industry because you've got the weather. I mean, lots of people deal with the weather, but it affects you. You've got it's just the things that go wrong always happen on a Sunday or a Saturday, and you know it, it'll take you half a day to if you've got a cow that's sick or something. You know, there's there's four hours just out of your day. So, and how mm. how about that pastoral nature of looking after the animals as well? Because you're spending mm. a lot of time with a herd, mm. with a whole lot of cows, and then when they get ill or when they are pregnant and, and have calves or or when they have to be um, sent to the slaughterhouse or whatever, I mean, do, do you kind of get emotionally attached to the cows spending that much time with them? Oh, you do. And even if you're in a herd with 800 cows, you, it sounds silly that you – would you know 800 cows? You don't, but when you're milking, you'll know when one cow's in the wrong order because they generally you have the same cows come in the first row and the same cows come in the last row, and you actually you learn them by their, their teats, their udder. <laughs> you sort of see a mark on their udder or something like that, and you'll say, oh, she's at the back of the herd. I wonder why that is. And, you know, there's a lot of times there'll be something wrong. She's got a sore foot or something like that. So... Yeah, you do get attached to their cows. They're um, and a, I mean, a lot of dairy farmers, you know, they they do. They really love their cows, and they they are really um, personality filled animals. As well, well, they are, yeah. And people don't you see a, a boring old cow, but no, they they do have personalities. Yeah, you definitely know who's who. You know, they have a picking order. You know who the top dog is. I think as as people who kind of know that they're not getting the best deal in the world, I think we kind of work pretty hard as humans just to pretend that they don't have similar characteristics as as dogs or cats with personalities and the like. But and that that's the thing that really strikes me with farmers because it is such a hard job and it is so emotionally in the trenches and it's such hard work uh, and and quite thankless. You know, like farmers have a um, have a pretty. D- difficult rap around the environment and the like. Like, yeah, what, yeah. What, what do you think about the way that farmers are treated and talked about in the media? Well, and just 
Yeah, coming back to that, um, farming is in some ways really hard work. In other ways, it's actually quite easy because you've got 10,500 or 11,000 dairy farmers in New Zealand all pretty much doing the same thing that we've done for the last 20 years. And if you need help, there's you know a whole heap of um, industry bodies with all sorts of advice. And so there's a lot of information there on how to do it. So in that way, it's it's easy, but it can be hard with just dealing with the elements and stuff. But Yes, how a farm how a farm is treated. It's oh, well, how do you generalise it? Because farmers, there's I mean, there's ten and a half thousand Fonterra farmers, and they all pretty much think differently. Mm. So the the problem that I've really found with the industry is that if you're a, a progressive dairy farmer who wants to do something differently, it's very difficult to step out of that system um, unless you've got heaps of money. Yes, yeah, so so how so yeah, let's talk about stepping out of the system. So you'd run uh, traditional uh, dairy farms and then wanted to come back at it with a new approach. What was the new approach you were bringing? Well, I could just see that people are really concerned about animal welfare and, and the sustainability was the first thing, you know, um, all the, the headlines around water quality and things like that. And I just, I wasn't farming at the time and I don't know, I just saw some headline about, you know, farmers water quality and things and I thought well what the heck is actually the deal with this and I spent a bit of time just researching it and we found out that the you know the science is there we actually know what causes it we know how to stop it but the problem is it requires farmers to either de-intensify or come up with some magic um, sort of uh, science that's going to enable to stay intensive but whatever whatever mechanism I could you could research around or find that was going to mean that your cows weren't affecting the environment essentially means that your costs were going to be higher. Yeah. And, um, you know, for the last 17 years, farmers have on average get paid 50 cents a litre for their milk. So any sort of mitigation or any sort of farming system that is going to be sustainable has to fit and be workable within that 50 cents a litre. And that's where the problem comes. Yeah, yeah, because it's a zero-sum game. If the only game you have is putting more cows on the land because it's a mm-hmm. weight of milk solids game, yeah. then anything you do with riparian buffers to plant out so that nitrates don't hit the waterways, anything you do that means that the, the land isn't over-intensified yeah. is just money out of your pocket. Yeah, so if you say, oh, well, we're going to run cover crops, which, you know, you put crops behind your cows in the winter, you know, that essentially means you have less, you're less intensive, you have less cows on those paddocks. And, um, yeah, it means, you, you know, you might have 2.5 cows per hectare rather than three cows per hectare, and that's a direct cost. That's like, you know, if you're running a cafe, it's it's like um, either employing two staff that don't do anything. You, you know, you become a sixth less productive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and this has been the problem for years as well, this idea that... Um, you know, uh, dairy has to move past the the strict primary play and and start adding some value. Yeah, we've been hearing that for 20-odd years. And, and yeah, I mean, people run out there and we see reports, we see farmers gallivanting around the world come back telling us to tell our story better and this, that, and the next thing. (laughs) And, and, you know, 20 years of Fonterra and we're still getting 50 cents a litre for our milk, you know, and I don't see, you know, meanwhile we've seen A2 Milk Corporation come Mm -hmm. in 
And what is this, our largest company now, I think? And yeah, and, and that started as a renegade splinter from the dairy board. Like um, people yeah. who'd been dairy board, uh, you know, grandees, mm. <laughs> saw that there was this protein story and then went and set up an idea. Yeah, and the thing is, is that, is that the science isn't settled on that A2 either. It's, it's marginal science, but it doesn't matter. Facts don't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Marginal science, fantastic marketing. And that, yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting perspective on that. I mean, even look at Lewis Road Creamery. I mean, they're another example of you taking, you know, milk and just dressing it up mm. and selling it at a premium, you know. And and, and yeah. the fact that there wasn't, um, there wasn't a premium butter in a country that had been famous for butter <laughs> for so many years. was It's remarkable that there was still room in the market for Lewis Road Creamery to do such beautiful mm. products mm. Uh, in a dairy country. That That's the culture. It's a cultural thing. You see, dairy farmers are actually, well, they're property investors. That's what the dairy farming is. So when you talk to dairy farmers, it's, oh, you know, if you're prepared to work hard, you can get ahead and own your own farm. So that's that's what they're about. They're about a business and own your own farm. They're not about we produce this wonderful product. Although they do say that. Yeah. That's not the that's not the core of the culture. Well yeah, if the if the price of your good hasn't gone up but your wealth has gone up, then it's because of the capital gains on yeah. the, the property. And this is the problem with the dairy industry. If Fonterra doubled the payout tomorrow or even made it fifty percent higher um twenty percent higher, um all that means is the, the land price goes up. And everyone starts um, having to pay that additional uh, income into interest. <laughs> so without that extra margin on the milk price because of not adding the value, th- yeah. there's not the room to kind of do more interesting practices. Is, is that kind of yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the mass uh, stasis that's going on? Yeah, because basically for us to farm sustainably and ethically and do all the things we need to do, it costs us about 80 cents a litre to produce a litre of milk. We're... Um, you know, farmers are producing it for about 45, 47 cents at the moment. So nearly double. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we're saying. We're and saying, well, we can't, you can't actually do it properly at 50 cents a litre. So that's why we start thinking, well, you know, surely, you know, if a litre of milk sells for $2.60, you know, we're only talking 30 cents extra at, at the production side. So, you know, the, the theory is if I just go to my customers and say, will you pay 30 cents extra? Of course they would. Mm. The difference between $2.60 and $3, you know. And what, what is it that mm. consumers should be knowing more about? Because the sustainability piece is quite well understood, I think, that, mm. that waterways are less uh, swimmable than they have ever been. And yeah. a large por- portion of that is the, the effluent and the nitrate runoff off dairy. I think people are aware that Cows are a, a contributor to greenhouse gases, and, mm. and, and uh, that, that dairying um, is kind of uh, not sustainable in those practices. But I think the ethical piece is still something that's maybe not really that widely. No. Maybe, I think I think as a nation, you know, we've got our heads in the sand about a lot of that. T- t- tell mm. me the story of what the ethical side of it is. Yeah, well, how would you know? I mean, you just think cows produce milk, but no, a cow needs to have a calf every year to produce milk. She'll typically calve in August. And um, her milk production peaks, you know, about 40 days later. And then from that point on, her milk production just decreases every month until it virtually will go down to nothing. So what you do is after you've milked her for about um, nine months, uh, you'll dry her off and she'll have three months off and then have a calf again. So the issue that the public have is that 
you know, 75% of these calves are really unwanted and not needed. And traditionally, they've gone on the bobby truck. I don't know why it's called a bobby truck, but at four, four days of age, the calves that won't be held back and kept with the herd um, uh, will go off and be slaughtered. And that's where the public is just saying, hmm, I don't really like that. <laughs> so it's so four days old. And, and these, the relationships that any mother has with its young, you know, of any animal, uh, yeah. you, you know, what, what's it like? Is it, is it an emotional moment to actually separate them? Are the cows distressed? Are the calves yeah, distressed? Well, I mean, you get good mothers and bad mothers. But, um, yeah, it's a natural instinct. It's like I've had a calf. I'm meant to protect, protect it. And, um, yeah, so the people have seen the images on the TV where you – Typically, you go around and you pick the calves up at birth and take them back to the calf shed and just feed them by hand, basically. And the mothers, you know, obviously they run after their calf and look for it and they moo a bit. And then, to be honest, five days later, they just carry on the life of a cow. Yeah. Um, so that story is a difficult story to tell people. It, it sounds like a, ho- a like a horrible day at work. You, you know, not to trivialise it, but really, like if that's what part of the the dairy industry is based on, you know, knowing yeah. that once a year, and then and then also like just being in there and like hand feeding these calves for a couple of days that then are off to be slaughtered must feel like a I don't know how does it feel does it feel like a, a pretty thankless task or well I suppose it's different for me because I grew up always been around calves and it's sort of what was happened it's so yeah that's that's how it's it's always been for me but I mean my my um father-in-law they're um sheep farmers and my mother-in-law will never let any anyone eat the lamb from their farm you see she just couldn't bring herself to it and they've always said you know they didn't really like the idea of calves being removed from their mothers and when in the early days when I was still on a dairy farm I just looked at my wife and I was like what are you talking about? <laughs> That's just how it's done. Yeah. And when you step out of the industry and start looking at the world in a different way, and you're thinking, well, actually, you've got a good point. There, there, there are so many ways I don't think I could even begin to count them that I'm not tough enough to be a dairy farmer. And <laughs> that, that's right up there. You know? I suppose, I mean, we're going to investigate this. It's really, you can have long, long discussions like, what sort of feelings does a cow have? Mm. Is a cow the same as a human bond? Is that bond between its mother and baby the same as if you went to Middlemore Hospital and you talk to a mother and baby, you know? Um, yeah, and that's the thing. Is it like, I suppose you could say your your dog that you've got at home was removed from its mother mm. and at weaning and taken to your house, you know, and, and the mother was probably like, where's my little puppy? And well, pe- people do put, you know, do it with their, their cats if they have a cat that has a litter or dogs that have, uh, yeah. you know, puppies, <laughs> they do separate them out and send them off to other people. They don't kind of maintain a nuclear family with <laughs> their, their pets forever. But I think like the actual action of like um, keeping them having babies, removing those babies, mm. uh, those babies going off to be slaughtered, yeah. it's quite like, it's like at the very basis of the dairy industry to keep it rolling is something that I think people kind of shy away from and has like real ethical considerations. Yeah. And I thought what you were doing was uh, really interesting in trying to address that ethical consideration yeah. by, by what, what was that with keeping the cows and the calves together? Yeah, well, that's right. This idea of, oh, it's, it's like she's a factory and she gets a calf and then she's, she's continuously pregnant and things like that. So it's not a, yeah, it's not a story that people really take to so what we've tried to do is change the whole system up where let's just leave the calf with its mum 
you know, it'll spend 15 to 20 weeks with his mum. At that stage, it's, it's kind of like breastfeeding a five-year-old. Um, they're more than willing, uh, more than able to live, you know, without milk. And it's just everyone's happy. I just watch it in the paddock. And also we don't, we, we milk our cows in the paddock with a mobile cow shed, which we're the only one in the country. And the whole... I suppose it's just the whole dynamic of the herd is different. So the cows aren't walking all over the, you know, back and forwards to cow sheds. And, and also we, we just let the cows, I suppose, get in calf naturally with a bull. So we run bulls all year round and she just gets in calf when she's ready. As opposed to artificial insemination. Uh, yeah, yeah. So a, a factory line of impregnating cows. So that's yeah. another weird day at the work. <laughs> so that's, that's also a difficult one for people to understand. I mean, while artificial insemination isn't a, um, it doesn't hurt the cow or anything like that. It's it's more it's the the psychology behind it, like you're saying. It's and the, what's happening is that they want that calf to be born, you know, within about a four week period. So the biggest killer of cows is that she won't get in calf within that specific period of time. So if she doesn't get in calf at the right time, well then she becomes a late calver, and then she's actually she's an additional cost. So she'll go to the works. Um, the other thing is cows sore feet. We have cows that just can't handle walking up and down year after year after year, and then they go to the works. So, so if they go into the works, are they then um, is that going to the works as um, beef, yeah. or is it as mm. kind of rendering and the like? Or I have no idea where yeah. it goes. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, so uh, I mean, I think the average age of a cow is six years of age or something. So we're only really getting four years of of milk out of her before she's no good. So we're trying to find a way of just being more efficient with that. Let's just keep the cows we've got and, you know, make them last a lot longer. And, and with millions of cows having millions of calves and mm. 75% of them being mm. uh, immediately slaughtered, um, there's a lot of kind of like, there's a lot of life being created and a lot of like work going into something mm. that doesn't last for a very long time. Yeah, well, it's just, it's like looking at what resources you've got in your business and how do you make the most of it. So people are looking at that bobby calf as a uh, as an additional cost and they're just saying, I don't want to deal with it, let's just get rid of it. Um, but actually, if you feed that calf with its mother, it'll be heavier than if you fed it in the calf shed. You know, it'll get to 100 kgs quicker and then that animal then becomes quite a valuable beef animal. So. I mean, we're in animal agriculture. Everything is going to end up as beef at some stage. So, you know, we, we have to admit that. But we may as well use it as a as um, a positive. And this is where farmers should probably also become beef farmers as well. And we're coming back to this mixed farming model, which we used to be 30 or 40 years ago, where you would have a few cows and you might have some beef cows and then you'd also have a few crops. And what happened there is you've just got this natural rotation and it sort of mimicked what nature did anyway. And as we've become more and more industrialized and specialized, we now, farmers do the numbers and they say, well, my land is limited. I'm better off to put as many cows on there and contract out the feeding of calves or contract out all my young stock or, or buy in my feed. You know, I can get yeah. palm kernel from Indonesia yeah, cheaper yeah. and that sort of thing. Buy, buy in the palm kernel, which is... Build, yeah, yeah, burning down forests all around the world to, to grow more of it and then buy in the nitrates to make the land keep being productive when it's actually yeah. Yeah. tired as all get out. I mean, it, it has got to a stage where, you know, lots of people have looked at the industry and gone, you know, this 
this thing that like maybe was our national pride is mm. not not something that we can really be that proud of in lots of places. And what, mm. what, what was the response when you went to that and went, hey, let's let's improve this? You know, like I'm 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 uh, pro dairy farming, I'm pro the the yeah. industry, and I want to do it in a better way to keep up with you know times and expectations. Mm. How did people react to that? Oh well, people were great. Um, the farmers, it was difficult to sell. Like I started this in probably 2008 and I sort of said, look guys, we should, I'd say to my dairy farming friends, let's start this business. And they would just look at me blankly. And this was before Lewis Road or anything like that. And people were like, milk is milk, Glenn. (laughs) Um, And I said, no, I think there's issues here and we could do it. And anyway, I really, after five years of that, realized that if anyone was going to do anything, it would have to be me. And then I thought, if I could just get something started and I can show people that the public were really into this, I should be able to get investment. But uh, no. <laughs> yeah, t- t- talk me through that journey with the company. So you, know, you, you came out with some really interesting um, innovations, you know, and yeah. in, in an industry that's so massive, it's amazing how, um, you know, not fast moving it is. That mm. there are, that they were such innovations. Tell yeah. me about how you solved that one with the, the calves and the well, others. The problem is if I go to a dairy farmer and I say, let's start this milk brand and we're going to leave our cows with their calves and all this stuff, and they'll just say, well, I've got 500 cows and you've got really a market for 30 cows. You know, it's, it's too much of a hassle for them to do it just for a small number of cows. So I figured I had to do it myself and didn't really have much money. So um, I built this mobile cow shed, which enabled me to lease land and convert it to dairy, essentially. So, and that what that did is enabled me to farm the way I wanted to farm. Um, so we had to get this cow shed approved by MPI and so on. So we started that and then um, started processing our milk, pasteurising it. And and, and so take, take me back to the, mm. um, the mobile shed. So mm. that means that the cows with new calves don't have to do the two kilometre walk to mm. the, so, the milk shed so yeah. that they're able to stay with them longer. And it also means that land that currently doesn't have a milk shed within Kui mm. can be used for dairy as well. So there's probably like a, it's probably a lot of people going, oh, that's a clever thing to do. Well, I thought it was pretty clever, but no one's wants, no one wants to buy any. Um, <laughs> Yeah, because if you look at a dairy farm, you build a million-dollar cow shed in the middle, and the the only land that you can milk off is within walking distance of that cow shed. So that inherently means that that land becomes intensive. But if you can move the cow shed, it means you can move any old where, and you can you can give land a spell. You can rest it. So that was the initial um, theory behind it. So yeah, we we bring the cow shed to the cows the cows just stay in the paddock and we move the cow shed after every milking and it just slowly moves along the paddock and that way the cows aren't walking anywhere they're not separated from their calves and um it's just a well it's kind of cool yeah it's a it's a it's a great innovation and so that got approved and that all worked but it was an expensive outlay and and that solved like one of your problems which was the the um calf separation what about the um what about the other one around sustainability with packaging? So, yeah, we wanted to use the glass bottle because we could see back then that plastic was an issue and glass, actually, milk tastes better in glass. Um, so we figured, well, before that we looked at trying to get contract processing, but there's no one in the South Island who will process milk at that volume. Well, actually, there isn't anyone who will process milk for you on contract. So we had to become our own processor. And then... Um, this glass bottle and filling the glass bottle and the reusable side of it just doesn't really fit in with um, a typical supermarket um, 
well, I suppose the way they work, you know, if you bring your glass bottle back to your new world and you give them the empty one and take back a full one, there's a a procedure that goes behind the scenes. We have to account for it all and it's a little bit cumbersome and clumsy. So what we found is that we just couldn't scale really because I had to go and meet every individual foodstuffs owner and try and convince them to do this and then they had to try and convince their 100 checkout staff what to do. Or And it's, yeah, our path to market with that glass bottle is just, wasn't working. And so you'd got the distribution going though. So people mm. were interested in in, oh, uh, yeah. in carrying the milk that had a higher kind of mm. e- ethical standard to it and was also in a glass container. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, all the top cafes in Christchurch are using our milk. I mean, when you take our milk and put it in a coffee, it's just hands down way better. And most baristas in Auckland or wherever have not actually made coffee with proper milk. Um, what's the what's the difference? What's the difference between your milk? Is it is it simply like the name of the company? Happy cows make <laughs> no, make no. for happy milk, or no, no. Well, there's, yeah, of course, um, but no, it's um, our milk's not standardised. So and it's not homogenised. And what that means, it's got a higher fat and a higher protein content, and um, it just makes a much a better milk. Um, and most people who have just bought Blue Top and they don't really understand what real milk is, but that standardization homogenization process i think is what's causing a lot of the um um, dairy intolerance rather than an a2 protein or something like that but i have no science to back that up (laughs) (laughs) the the people like the milk more they they enjoy it more oh yeah yeah yeah. that's unstandardized unhomogenized and the problem for me is and if you look you don't find lewis road creamery or puhoy in your local cafe is because the economics of supplying cafes it's it's a hard business because cafes you know, they haven't got a huge amount of money to spend, you know, on milk. And the cafes who are using our milk are spending 80% more to get our milk into their coffee. So it was a, it's a big commitment for them to do that. But it's hard to get scale um, through, the, through the cafes. So we went retail as well. And heaps of people loved what we were doing. And, <laughs> but everyone wants to put their margin on. And essentially, because this is a prototype system and we've sort of cobbled it together with literally stuff off Trade Me and... <laughs> Literal stuff I found lying in paddocks. Um, and, and your life savings and thousands of hours. <laughs> you don't talk about my life savings. <laughs> yeah. So um, we'd cobbled this prototype together and essentially we were farming relatively inefficiently because we weren't doing that the way we wanted to do it. We were processing inefficiently. We were distributing inefficiently. And when you're at the smaller scale, you just, um, you just can't make it work at that. So I decided... I just thought, heck, you, you know, the, you're used to overcoming problems and you just deal with it and deal with it and deal with it. And I just thought, hang on, I think we should just reset here because over the time I'd just gone so far off what the original plan was, you know, solving problem after problem. And now we had three years of data, we had three years of talking to customers, understood all the issues around it, and I thought, well, we better just stop and reset. So that's why we... So the thing that made you fall over really was the, the distribution with the glass bottles. The big retailers wouldn't come yeah. on board because they had to accept back the empties, and yeah. it meant that it was more expensive. I mean, mm. at, at one point, do you go kind of like, oh, stuff it, we'll put it in a composting plastic or, you know, a plastic that's a plastic alternative? And- mm. Well, I spoke to um, Innocent Packaging and they were like, mm, well, we actually don't know of anything. There isn't anything in the milk bottle like that. And I Googled the world over and there isn't actually, that's not available yet. Um, and, yeah, we could have just put it in a plastic bottle and that would have worked, but 
and still solve some of the ethical side of things. Yeah, yeah, we could, and no, maybe I should have. But the problem was is we still couldn't get a contract processor in the South Island. Um, and, and so a contract processor is someone who pro- m- m- handles yeah. the milk and, and the like, but yeah. they won't do it to your unhomogenized, unstandardized uh, specifications, or they just won't do it? Well, there just isn't anyone in the South Island. So if there's only really a couple of Fonterra plants and Green Valley dairies in, in Auckland here that process all the milk in the country. Um, so when you are buying your Puhoi, your Lewis Road, it's, it's the same milk. It's the same factory. It's the same. They just swap the bottle. Um, and, you know, Fresher Valley or Green Valley, I think they call themselves, they'll do 18 different brands there, and then they all get shipped around some go overseas and around the country. So that's how the business model of the milk business works. It's whether it doesn't matter who you are, you buy milk from Fonterra, you find someone who's going to package it. There's one company pretty much who'll do it easily and um, away it goes. And then you you position your brand however you want to. And and so amongst those different uh, brands within the same factory, when they say that they've got different milk qualities, they do, don't they? It's just the same base material or? Uh, yeah. So if it's non-homogenized, they just turn the homogenizer off. Mm. And um, yeah, so it's, it's different qualities, yeah. Yep. But um, yeah, it's generally the processing is done at scale in you know, a handful of factories. And so having built, you know, your own processing ability, your own milk mm. shed, uh, worked out a way to... Um, uh, get back to an old model of having bottles that you would swap out and then um, sterilize and re- refill and the like, kind of rebuilding an old industry. Well, yeah, that's the thing. We're actually doing everything the way it was done in the 70s, pretty much. Like our, we use batch pasteurization, which is different to the modern technology, and it does actually make your milk taste different as well. It's less efficient, but yeah, everything is just. Yeah, we're not high tech, that's for sure. But as I said, it, we need to find a way of just being more efficient. Um, so that's re- there's not one there's not one single thing that is the silver bullet. It's basically we have to cobble all these things together um, and make them work. So what generally people do around the world is when they're going to start a farmer decides they're going to start processing their milk is they just take what a big company does and scale it down. But that doesn't actually work because you actually need to do uh, things quite differently. So we've figured out how to do it, what we're going to do, and we just need a bit of money to do it. Yeah, and so where where are you now? Like, So the article that you did in um, the spinoff <laughs> was fantastic, and you told that story of the, 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 the journey and then deciding just to kind of put, put pause on for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what's the response been like there, and, and how have people come to want to get involved? Well... I suppose my wife came to me one day, oh, this one afternoon, she said, Glenn, you've just got to shut this down. It's just getting carried away. You've got to shut this down. I said, okay. And she's probably been saying that every day for the last two years. And I said, okay. And she didn't believe me. She just thought I was saying, okay, like I always do. And I realized I didn't have any milk to deliver tomorrow. I better just tell my customers there'll be no milk. So I just did a little Facebook post saying, sorry, guys, we've decided to, to end it here. Um... And I was going to go about cleaning everything up. And then (laughs) the Facebook page just sort of went mental. And then um, I got a tweet saying, would you like to share your experiences? So I just um, wrote out, you know, 
what ended up in the spin-off there and I really didn't think anything of it and it's it really has gone mental. It's just, I mean, I've had invitations to speak. Um, I've had <laughs> investor inquiries from San Francisco. And, you know, all these investors I've been talk, trying to talk to for the previous three years <laughs> have come back and said, oh, yeah, okay, well, maybe, maybe we'll give you some money. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's amazing. Well, how, how are you feeling at that moment when you did decide to kind of because you've you, you've invested a lot of time and energy, and I imagine also, mm. you know, like the um, every promise you make to a supplier or someone that you're gonna, you know, or to a customer, like mm. that, that's also hard to then just decide to stop. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you've got the cafes that are expecting milk. You know, you need to tell them <laughs> I can't give you any milk anymore. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a, a surreal feeling when you've actually after all those times where you should have pulled the pin and you haven't to actually just decide right I actually probably am going to do it now and it's sort of it's almost like an outer body experience because yeah I mean I just did really throw the kitchen sink at it which from a a risk uh, management perspective was probably not the best thing to do but um, yeah I mean that's really when you admit you said okay I've actually I'm not going to be able to make this work so I um yeah, and then you don't really know what you're going to do. I'm just thinking, heck, you know, I've got to do something with the cows. I've got to do something with, with everything, you know. I've got to tell, you know, my staff that they're not needed anymore or, yeah, it's a, uh, I, I can't really explain it. Yeah, and, and the support that you've had, like you mentioned in that story about, you, you know, putting that much work into making things that haven't existed and keeping going when everyone says no and like changing the structure, mm. it means that you, you you aren't able to put as much energy and work into the, the home and, and your family. And like, that's a really mm. a, a beautiful thing to see acknowledged as well. Yeah. Well, I wonder what, I wonder what the divorce rate in founders is. <laughs> is it the same as everyone else? I don't know. But um, yeah, I mean, you just, you're just so busy, you just flat out and, you know, you try and make it all work. But at the end of the day, I mean, you have to, you can't do everything. And, yeah, you just got to decide what the priority is. So, you know, if we start the business again, it's it's not going to be, you know, I can't put in the time like that. I need to, I'll only do it if we've got a good co-founder or co-founders and only do it if we've got enough money. Otherwise, it's just not not worth it. And what are the next steps at the moment? Have you, um, you, you know, have you got a plan to get it going again under that better structure, or, or yeah, do you so want to go got out a crowdfund, or do you want people to express their interest? And well, well, <laughs> everyone started saying, well, crowdfunding. So I thought, oh, all right, well, we'll look into it. So we, um, yeah, we we've got a uh, an email list. I mean, I think we built six thousand. In, uh, 6,000 people in 48 hours or something signed up to that. And, yeah, so we're just investigating that. But it's still, like I said, I mean, if we're going to do this business properly, it needs to be done, you know, with serious funding. Yeah. So crowdfunding probably isn't going to be able to raise us what we need for that. So we're still deciding what we're going to do. But I'm chatting with investors at the moment. What's serious? What, what's serious funding? <sighs> I don't know. Well, probably need a mill. 
Lots of crowdfunding campaigns get up over, you know, like um, soaps get, you know, they, they, like lots of lots of things get lots of cash. Yeah, but yeah. Here's, here's the proposition. I'm saying, right, um, my business failed and I'm asking you to give me a million dollars to relaunch it. And everyone's going to say, well, right, so why is this one going to work, Lynn? Yeah, I don't know. Like the, the, um, I spoke to Anna um, Gunther from yeah, Ple- yeah, Pledge yeah. Me and uh, she said the very first thing anyone should do is go out to their crowd and ask them, would you support it? Which is such good advice because, you know, you might, you might be amazed that, um, yeah, like the fact that you've 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 had, uh, you know, you you did make that decision to pull pin, and it didn't all go to plan. You, you're already a lot mm. further ahead than if you hadn't already gone through that process. Yeah, well, it's it's probably just a uh, we've just done a good market uh, evaluation study for the past three years. So, yeah, and I guess one thing was the incredible concentration of power and decision making amongst Fonterra and amongst mm. the big suppliers that they have is mm. that it means that it's slow and it just does things one way and it's a hell of a battle to change it. Mm. But if you can influence people to make a change in in processes, then that could be spread very quickly through through the country, couldn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, it would be great if someone like Fonterra would say, look, we see what you're doing. I think the likes of Fonterra, they think they have to do everything at scale. I think, well, how if we're going to launch something, it has to be rolled out to 10,500 farmers. But I don't think it does. And I think, you know, if we could bring back your local farmer, you know, that would be um, – it's really just a culture change. Even if, you know, farmers – we have two, two – f- types of farmer. We've got our commodity farmer and then your, your branded farmer and they're just totally different people. And, you know, if we could have two streams of that would be great. So, you know, we're happy to work with anyone who's, who wants to uh, achieve the goal. Well, if anyone listening would like to get involved, uh, how can they get hold of you, Glenn? Oh, um, go to our website, happycowmilk.co.nz. Um, I think my phone number's there, email's there. Um, I... Uh, oh. I try. I reply to every Facebook message, so Facebook me. Um, yeah. yeah, that's great. And, and you know, thank you very much for coming and, and sharing um, sharing your story and talking about the industry. You know, it is it is so interesting to get to uh, get past those stereotypes of things because mm. you know, like farmers, I think they get they get a hard rap, and there's obviously you know a lot of evidence based things about you know the negative impacts of farming on the country mm-hmm. but you know i don't think it's the person getting up at 4 in the morning and and putting the work in who's who's trying to set that set that system yeah well there's a lot of rednecks out there but um, there's a heck of a lot of um, progressive farmers and really if they've got a system that's laid out to say look you're not going to have to you know literally bet the farm to do this then we could change Mm. Well, thank you very much for sharing your story today. Thank you. Thank you, Alice Wedlidell, for producing, and thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callaghan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network... That was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? 
Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.